3: Hey, everybody, I'm Robert Evans. Uh, This is not really uh, an episode of Behind the Bastards. I just wanted to make sure people had access to the full audio of all of the interviews I conducted for the uh, World is Burning episode that uh, ran earlier this week. Uh, So, this episode is just the unedited audio of all of those interviews. There will be a normal episode uh, coming on Thursday as well. Um, So, to start off, we have the unedited audio of my interview with those two Chilean activists, uh, and I'm going to play that right now. Yeah, so um would you guys give a, a, an or or you Stephanie if you'd like give an overview in your own words of why these protests started. Obviously like the 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 kind of foreign headline is uh, bus or a, a public transit, you know, fare increase leads to protests. My understanding is that's just sort of kind of the spark that lit a bunch of tinder on fire. Yeah. yeah. But I'm interested in yeah, what would you blame it on?
4: Yeah, we the, the last year we we are participating different protests uh, for this, uh, different um, things about um, problems that we have almost uh, almost start with the Pinochet, with the Q,
3: mm-hmm.
4: stuff about the um, como fp.
5: With the pension plan system okay. and um,
4: the education that is is really uh, high cost and uh, the healthcare problem and uh, really uh, expensive uh, transportation and uh, um, and the uh, the como mal como decirte como mal Eh, como el que nunca
5: se Yeah, the minimum wage is very low. So, right. Yeah, it's like you said, um, where what initially started this protest was a group, uh, a bunch of students who were evading uh, the uh, metro, so to protest the rise in the fare, which is the second or third time they've um, raised the metro. Uh, in the last three years um, and so it's the most expensive metro in South America and um, and even though for someone from the United States it might seem it's still very cheap or how are they only protesting over 10 more cents or whatever but um, in Chile if you make the minimum wage you could be spending almost 20% of your wage on the metro and so wow. it is very expensive here and and uh, so what happened is a lot of students were um, getting together as like a big group, and so there would be hundreds of them, and they would all rush into the metro together and, and jump over the turnstiles. And so the uh, that's how it all started, and then the police were very uh, heavy-handed in their reaction and got very violent, and then it got kind of worse from there, and so the protest exploded into... Uh, more of a general protest because um, there's been a lot of problems in Chile and there's a lot of um, inequality and a lot of things that have never been fixed since the uh, since the dictatorship. Um, so they're still using the same constitution that was written by Pinochet and um, yeah, and there's lots of other things. Yeah.
3: Yeah
5: the corruption of Piñera, the current president, and then a lot of people protest over the last couple of years about the pension plans, the uh, AFP, and um, so...
4: Collusion of companies, uh, uh, selling uh, land of, for hydroelectric companies too, only for business. And um, it's really interesting because in Chile, uh, almost uh, 10 family are they have control uh uh for of the they are the they are they have control uh with the como tienen como control del país más o menos como son las más ricas
5: yeah so it's it's similar to the United States where there's uh you know a couple hundred uh, billionaires that are kind of controlling everything but in Chile it's literally ten families and these ten families uh, are are very very rich and have a lot of control in the country, um, but but yeah. So it's it's a, about a, a lot of things. Um, uh, the protests now.
3: And uh, would you y'all walk me? In, uh, to- oh sorry.
5: These in
4: this.
3: No sorry, no. Please continue. Don't... Please continue.
4: No in this um. Uh, you know this uh, period period of the Pinera uh, that is the president. Yeah. Is it the second um, uh, period?
5: Second term for Pinera. Yeah,
4: they, he, he has. So I think all the Chilean think that uh, the the caps in um, in the the terms of the Pinera they are more um, aggressive this year. In all the terrain, so
5: there's also yeah a big issue with like the militarization uh, militarization of yeah. the uh, of the police yeah so the police are really heavy and like she was saying especially with uh, under uh, under Pinera, um the police respond to often peaceful protests with with tear gas and um, and violence. And now, of course, there's been declared the state of emergency, so now you have the military and tanks in the streets, too.
3: And why, you said that the police have gotten more aggressive and more violent this year. Why would you, yeah. do you have, do you, is there a reason behind that, do you think? Like, is, is there some sort of no, cause to that that you can see? It, no, it's, it's not any reason. It's only
4: a strategy of the government, but it's a bad idea. And, um, uh, and um, a couple months ago, we saw some car of the cops uh, driving in the in the Paseo, really traditional in the center of the city, and uh, como tirando tirigas, De acuerdo?
5: Oh yeah, yeah. A couple months ago. Um there was uh, some crazy protests and uh, the police were were driving through like Plaza de Armas, like the, the downtown, uh, like the center, the historic center of town, and um, and and throwing tear gas at people who weren't even protesting. And um, but to answer your question, I think that it just has to do with the government because um, a, a couple years ago the president was Bachelet, who is uh, more center left, and so I think the police. Now under Pinera, understand that they kind of have carte blanche to to do whatever they want, and that they won't be reprimanded for um, violence against protesters.
3: And when this when this current wave of like heavy street action broke out, were you were y'all there for sort of the beginning of that? Were you there on sort of the the the, the first day that this like really kicked off into um, you know a citywide sort of thing, rather than just kind of a fair protest?
5: Uh, yeah, definitely. So we, um, we live uh, about step six or seven blocks from mm-hmm. um, uh, Plaza Italia, which is the metro Bacchidano, which is like the center of downtown, and it's the historic place where um, protests always start. And, um, and so we're kind of in the thick of it. And then also we are right by this intersection where uh, when the protest really got serious uh, two nights ago, um, the there were five buses that were burned right at our intersection, so um, yeah, it's kind of right outside our,
2: our door.
3: <laughs> and uh, what do y'all, y'all, one of the obviously, I think probably internationally the most famous image from these protests so far is the, um, the headquarters of that electric company um, being burned down. Um, and it's usually, most of the sources I've seen have ascribed it to the protesters, but I have seen a lot of people saying that Um, It couldn't have been protesters because the fire started on a floor that only a limited number of people have access to. Um, Obviously, I don't think anyone can prove to a point of certainty one way or the other what happened yet. Um, Do do you all have sort of a a take on that, an opinion on that, what you think is most likely or what most people seem to believe?
4: Yeah, it's it's weird. With the boss, it's the same. Um, it's, it's, uh, It's crazy to believe because... Uh, with, with the uh, problem with the buses um, we saw a couple videos and um, one of these buses was uh, sculpted for the cops in really weird situation and uh, almost the, the bus they put in the place for the people can burn in for angry and uh, for the problem so this is not the the first time that the cops makes stuff crazy like that. So you you can think about and can use your imagination to to think that it's real. That it's it's fake. Is
5: yeah, um, like you know, we're uh, not typically uh, like conspiracy theorist people, but as far as like um, what. A lot of people have been talking about is uh, with both the uh, NL Electric Company, um, with the the fire that happened on their their uh, staircase, right? Their fire escape. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it, there was a number of suspicious things about it. You know, it started on the 11th floor, so it's like, how could a protester do that? And I don't know. Um, and of course, it only burned that. Uh, the fire escape and, and didn't touch anything about the main building and there. So there's a lot of suspicion here um, of that, and then uh, of the idea that possibly it was the police or the government who who started that as a way to justify um, bringing in the military and all of that and uh, starting the curfew and uh, what's thing is very similar is uh, these five buses that were burned outside uh, of our apartment um, it was very strange because yes there's there's almost never five buses all right next to each other uh, on the street on the, on the corner and um, and then there's also been videos that have been passed around whatsapp and um, social media where you see that these buses were like discontinued so they were already like in bad situation they're bad shape. And then there's a video that's been passed around of the police like escorting one of these buses like very slowly, almost like they're escorting it here so they can burn it and again use it as justification um, to ratchet up the police response. So it's hard to say, and you know you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but certainly yeah. there's um, there there's uh, suspicious things uh, happening in that regard, and on the street here almost every Chilean that we've talked to has, has said that they pretty much believe that it was the police that, that were doing that.
3: And in in terms of what you've seen in person from the police response to all this, how would you, how would you describe how you've watched the police uh, uh, deal with the protests so far? Like, what have you seen?
5: Uh, just a lot of tear gas, uh, a lot of Um, the water cannons um, Mm -hmm. mostly tear gas Uh, just in in our experience we've been kind of playing it safe we weren't getting really too too far into the extreme protest Um, we kept trying to go to the center to Plaza Italia but we kept uh, getting pushed back by tear gas every time Um, so and We've seen videos of of extreme violence, uh, the police beating people, yeah. and um, and even uh, hitting them with their cars, extreme and, stuff. And, yeah. Gary in the- a- and shooting them, yeah. And there's been a lot of videos we've seen on social media uh, of, of the police shooting innocent protesters, not doing anything. But as far as what we saw with our first, our our own eyes, um, mostly just a lot of tear gas. But sometimes it would be just like peaceful protesters. And the police would drive by and literally throw a tear gas out the window, a canister, and then drive away. So Jeez. it's also it's also interesting. Some people have been commenting that it's a little different. It seems different, the police strategy this time in yeah. comparison to previous protests, where they're not so much like um, kettling the protesters or... Um, not so much getting into one-on-one, physical, uh, f- like fist fistfights. Um, which is again, some people are saying, you know, that they want the protesters to get more extreme and burn more things and loot uh, so that that justifies what they're doing.
4: Yeah, and divide the people. Because uh, right. now you have the, the more extreme extremal people, boring stuff, destroying the city, Destroying the the pharmacy or the supermarket, and uh, the people like us that we we take the 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 stove and you shake with the spoon all day, and um, and when the police um, you can see the police and you need to run. So uh, so the, the the government I think uh, they want to divide the the. The, the feeling of the people, the feeling of the protest and the union of the people.
5: and um Yeah, um, so yeah, they're, they're just trying uh, to divide the people so that the, the people who might sympathize with the protesters will say, no, they, they've gone too far, they shouldn't be burning things or, or taking down uh, street lights or, or looting um, supermarkets. So, yeah.
3: And uh, as for this curfew, like, how long can you see it last? It's so extreme, it doesn't seem like civil life could continue if it goes on for too much longer.
5: Yeah, well, it just started last night. Last night it started at 10 o'clock, and then tonight they started it at 7 o'clock. So it is very extreme. And like I was saying to you uh, in text, that. I mean, if it if it were to go on for two more weeks, it would be insane. I, I can't imagine that that would happen. It would shut down the entire city. Um, but at the same time, I don't like tonight's protests were crazier than last night. I don't know. I don't see how it stops. Yeah. Um, because Pinera doesn't seem uh, like everything from the government has been just attacking the protesters, not taking any responsibility for the action of the police.
4: Yeah, and I don't know if the, he shanked the price of the ticket bus, if we are going to record the peace in the city. The people have has too much angry. so I don't know if it, we are going to be conforming.
5: I'm, con- like, satisfied. Yeah. So, Pinera has mentioned that he, he might... Uh, to, or he might freeze the, the price increase for the Metro, but at this point, it's like, that's not going to be enough to satisfy people because, as we mentioned, the protest is about things much worse than um, the Metro fare. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I don't think people will stop protesting unless Pinera resigns. The people are out there shouting and, and calling for his res- resignment, uh, re- resignation and, um, you know, I don't, obviously, I don't think he wants to do that
3: either. And if you could send out a message to people from around the world, Americans and, and, and Europeans and everyone else not in uh, Chile, listening to this, what is it that you want other people to know about what's happening in your country?
4: Um, I don't know. When, when we live in... Um in, in Colombia, mm-hmm. uh, the most uh, uh, common stuff that the people ask us it, it was um, why we leave Chile uh, when Chile is so good, so uh, good country and um, all the system is so so good. But um, the problem is that the problem is Chile has a lot of uh, problem for a long time Uh, almost start with the queue and uh, we didn't uh, have any solution for this so yeah we are not okay we have problem we have huge problem and the world uh, didn't know any like that
5: so yeah um, I guess I would just say to people that um, I, w- I hope that people are aware of what uh, the Chileans are protesting for and, and that they understand that it's not about the metro fare, it's, it's not only about paying 10 cents more, um, that it's about deeper, profound issues at, that are at the core of this country. Um, like for example still having the uh, constitution that was written by a dictator and things like that um, and so yeah like Stephanie was saying uh, kind of that people maybe need to understand that that life is really not so easy in Chile or, or, or maybe it is easy um, for for 20 percent of the country but a lot of the people here are really struggling and, uh, and the minimum wage is really, really low and, uh, and there's a lot of fundamental problems and, and that's why I think this is happening. So I would just uh, ask people to um, understand uh, a little bit uh, about the other issues with the, um, with the Constitution and the corruption and the pension plans and the minimum wage and all of those and um, and uh, even though I don't condone uh, looting or violence or anything like that, um, I would ask that people have some some empathy for the people who are out here protesting for a better life.
3: And obviously, I think the the the, the most well-known protests occurring in the world right now are the ones in Hong Kong. And I think the tactics there, I, I've seen them used and cribbed by protest movements in a number of other countries that are going on right now. Have you seen that have any impact on the tactics people are using on the ground?
5: Um, I know that I've seen a lot of people sharing videos on social media about uh, like the Hong Kong protesters. I, mm-hmm. um, uh, like diffusing the the um tear gas canisters you know where they'll put a traffic cone on top of it and then pour some um uh some sort of chemical solution in there and it it, uh, neutralizes it so i know that i haven't actually seen any chileans do that but i know a lot of people were talking about that um and well we have seen we were just being watched by a drone um, but uh, i don't think the facial recognition here in chile is as strong as hong kong um But yeah, I think that part of it is um, what's happening in Hong Kong and um, what's happening in Ecuador right now is probably influencing uh, the protesters here.
3: Um, And it it seems just in the last week that protests have started in a number of other countries. Um, Is there any sort of feeling, at least from you, that this is part of kind of a global you know you mentioned earlier in the interview that a lot of the, some of the problems that are happening in Chile right now are are similar to some ones that we are dealing with in the United States and others this like concentration of wealth. Do you have a sense that like the mass uprisings going on in a number of nations are all sort of part of something global that's bigger than just the movements in the individual countries
5: um, I don't know I would like to think so um, I would like to think that you know, hopefully we are opening our eyes to the failures of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I don't know if uh, I don't know if there's there is a grander movement here.
4: yes, sí, como está esto de Cas que apareció hace poco, por ejemplo. ¿Qué? Okay. Como extrema derecha que antes nunca existió.
5: Claro, pero hay una conexión entre como movimientos en ciudadano.
4: Claro, por ejemplo, eso con Brasil, y que también hay un hueón súper a favor de este tipo de cosas. Como medio se conecta, como el movimiento de derecha está siendo sí. más fuerte y más visto.
5: Okay. So, another thing is that um, we have, the, the left maybe is growing stronger and um, using more forceful methods uh, because of the growth of the extreme rights in, in uh, you know, all over the world. Um, but especially feeling that in South America, uh, with, in Brazil, and then also in Chile, where you have um, someone like Cast, who was a presidential candidate, uh, who is extremely to the right, even more so than the current president. And um, and so I think that the uh, the... The, maybe in some ways the left is responding to that uh, and a fear of the extreme authoritarian return to dictatorship, right, like you have um, with Bolsonaro in Brazil, or, uh, you know, Cast who, who, who knows, could be president of Chile one day.
3: Well, thank you both very much for your time. I, I really appreciate you talking with me today. Um, cool, man. Yeah, yeah, I think that's all I wanted to get into right now. Um, Obviously, I'll be in touch with you as I figure out kind of my schedule, and and please do keep me updated on on y'all and what you see happening outside your door.
5: Yeah. Okay, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm happy to like send you some photos. Please, and yeah. If you make yeah. it down here, um, we'll we'll show you around, and uh, and yeah, send me a, a link to your podcast.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both so much for your time.
5: Okay, cool, well, thank man. You. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.
3: Okay, uh, I'm back, and that was the Chile interview. And next, we have my interview with Jody Ayoub over in Lebanon. So I'm going to play that now. Hey, Joey. Hey. Hey, sorry, is this a good time still?
6: Yeah, yeah, it is. How
3: are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing today? I'm good,
6: thanks.
3: Yeah. Uh, Well, um, I guess we should just get into it. I'm... um, I'm I'm trying to I'm doing as much reading as I can to try to understand what's happening um in Beirut wow. right now. Yeah. Um and you know obviously um there's a lot to keep track of, you know, I've been, I've been I've been covering uh, uh, Iraq and Syria for years and I would say I, I barely have a uh, uh, a minimal level of competence in either of those nations politics. So I'm I'm pretty new to focusing on what's happening in Beirut. Um from yeah, what I, I've listened to or been able to read, it it seems like um, like the thing that the the news is crediting for these uprising or for the uh, uprising might not be the right word, but for these protests is attacks on WhatsApp. Um, yeah. When I've, I've listened to or read uh, things that other people in the area have written. Um, it seems like the wildfires that swept the country and like the, the fact that this helicopter fleet that was purchased um, by, you know, volunteers and then like allowed to kind of, um, decay into obsolescence like the 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 fact that just in general the government has been very ineffective at dealing with major problems like those wildfires is a much bigger reason for the protests um but I, I'm interested in kind of your telling of like why this has all happened um and sort of how it's how it where, where you see things as being at right now
6: yeah, so it's it's a bit of both and obviously much more than that at the same time. Uh, the wildfires, that was last um, Monday, so that's the 14th, the night of the 14th to the 15th, and it lasted about 48 hours. And it was, and what, and 1,300 hectares? Those, yeah. Yeah, and those uh, 48 hours, we lost uh, basically a year's worth of uh, trees lost, usually. So I think there was something like 3 million t- uh, trees. That's horrible. So that's usually the on average. Yeah. Uh, so... That obviously pissed a lot of people off because the government was utterly incapable, unwilling, whatever we were used to deal with it. You had pretty much, you, we haven't had civil servants uh, paid in like 20 years, so these are all volunteer forces. And you had, you even had like the civil defense forces from the Palestinian camps that stepped up that helped, and you had basically volunteers. Uh, Just doing it themselves. There wasn't really anything until uh, two things happened that uh, put them off. One is uh, Greece uh, Cyprus and Jordan basically sent some uh, You know helicopters and whatever and the other thing is we got lucky because it started raining the day after. Yeah Uh, So that's pretty much why uh, like we the damage was more or less limited if you want and so the fact that After all of this, just like a day later or something, the the first thing the government can think of doing is to impose a tax on WhatsApp, which is obviously a free service that people use because actual phone services are extremely expensive in Lebanon. That was kind of, you know, as everyone has been saying, the, the, you know, that whole straw that broke the cameras back thing. And then you had protests on that, uh, like that uh, Thursday evening, so that's uh, basically a week now. And. In that protest, you had uh, lots of uh, roadblocks, you had basically some of the usual protests that we uh, have been seeing before, and during that protest, one of this if you want, uh, symbols that became this, uh, I don't know, uh, point of unity, I guess, is there was a bodyguard of one, one politician took out his gun, uh, started scaring people, people were not scared, they were actually fighting back, and then you had this uh, woman who kicked him. Uh, and that became this sort of meme and it became super popular and that kind of galvanized everything And then after that it became sort of like a daily story more people come down There's a bit of repression then the next day even more people come down kind of a familiar story If you if you see where I'm going with this yeah, and now How it's day number eight and people are sitting in the streets and it's way more than just in Beirut
3: and it was, you know, the the biggest protests so far were something like a quarter of the entire population that got out into the streets. Am I am I right on that? It was like a million some odd people.
6: Yeah, yeah. That's uh, the numbers I've seen is something like a million, like one point two million to one point seven million. And Lebanon is something like five million or six million if you want to include refugees as well. That's almost so that's 6. unbelievable. 6 significant uh, percentage of the population.
3: Yeah, I I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Uh, protests of that scale ever occurring in the United States like it it would literally be one of the most significant happenings in the history of our nation does does it feel like that to you like this is one of the most important things that's happened in the history of Lebanon
6: yes uh, for like for two reasons uh, even three reasons I was involved so I'll I'll kind of give some background here I was involved in the 2015 protests those Mm -hmm. that followed the waste crisis uh, as in, as in, like an, an in, its early weeks. And one thing that uh, happened then that is not happening now is that back then it was really central, centralized to Beirut, and you sort of had like a sort of middle class f- um, focus to it, if you want. Now it is completely spontaneous. There's actually no organizers, and it is Beirut is actually not even the most impressive one. You have protests in Tripoli that have been going on every single day. You have protests in Nabatieh. In the in the Ba Valley in um, Zu Musbah, and from um, and in Sur uh, it's here in the south, I'm sure I'm forgetting many other places. You pretty much like have over a hundred or two hundred or three hundred roadblocks every single day right now, uh, and it is utterly spontaneous. It's not there's not there's no organization behind it. So that's like really one of the main. Dif- I kind of mentioned both at the same time. The fact that it's not centralized in Beirut and the fact that it's it's uh, spontaneous. And you have much more of an awareness, if you want, that like we tried in 2015, it kind of led to more or less uh, good stuff in 2016, but not enough. Like the Beirut Madinati campaign during the municipal elections of Beirut, kind of uh, uh, hinted that it was things were going in the right direction. But then you had the elections last year, and I think we had like one independent or two independents that actually got in parliament, and that was about it, because the whole uh, system. Usually Lebanon is uh, divided between March 8 coalitions and March 14th coalition. They kind of came together uh, last year to defeat uh, civil society, if you want. And they've been doing this time and time again. The current government is a government uh, that historically has actually been of parties that were actually opposed to one another. Hariri's uh, future movement and Jermon Barsil's free, free patriotic movement, not to mention Hezbollah and Amal. Uh, you know, these are coalitions that kind of get formed on and off in a sense depending on, on the circumstances.
3: And what can you tell us about sort of the nature of how the security forces have responded to this? I, I can tell you that like a lot of what I've seen on Twitter has been, you know, there've been some pictures of like uh, Lebanese soldiers, you know, with tears in their eyes. Uh, and, and I guess sort of the, the thing we're led to take out of that is that um, even the Lebanese like police and military are very sympathetic to the protests. Um, I, I can't tell what's actually happening on the ground. So I'm wondering, what is your what is your take on that? Oh, that's not ideal.
6: No, and I mean.
3: Oh, sorry. It's, you you it's cut out of, for a second. Um, could you restart your answer to that? You heard the yes, question, yeah, right? Yeah. Sorry.
6: Uh, I did. I did. Yeah. Uh, it depends. On, so it depends on when and where. You did have some instances where the Lebanese army was sort of uh restrained, like it didn't. It actually stood in between. Uh, protesters and what we would call shabiha, so some uh, elements of the sectarian parties that uh, are basically let loose to intimidate people, if not do worse. But in other cases, like when we were gas last week, that was the Lebanese army as well doing it. So it really depends on when and where. There is definitely uh, a sentiment, I think, among Lebanese protesters. I don't share it personally, but it's definitely in the majority that um, you basically need to. Defend the army and try and get them on your side in a sense uh, At least individual and in individuals capacity that hasn't happened I don't think it will happen, but that hasn't happened as of now Because I want to really understand that the main difference between the army in Lebanon and the army in other places In the Middle East and North Africa is that the army in Lebanon is not the strongest for strongest force in Lebanon That's Hezbollah. Yeah, and every, like basically, you know, everyone knows that and so it's not seen as, uh, oh, you know, we might have a military coup or anything like that, because that's not really in, in the realm of of reality, if you want. So most of the violence, uh, again, depending on where we're talking, but it, quite a lot of the most brutal, anyway, uh, violence has come from the sectarian parties. So yesterday there was lots of violence in Nabatiyeh by Hezbollah and Amal uh, gangs, basically, Shabihah. And you had something like 25 or 30 people who were injured and had to go to the hospital. And in the evening yesterday, you had also, uh, uh, again, I'll just use the word shabiha of uh, the free patriotic movement in another area not too far from where I live. <coughs> that attacked uh, people as well. Actually, I'm not sure how many people were injured in that one. It wasn't as serious as the one in the south, but it was fairly serious as well. So you do have these uh, tensions between a, a uh, spontaneous... Um, if you want sense sense of the fact that we're, we're getting at the point where we can no longer tolerate 30 years of this you know two days ago was the 30th anniversary or commemoration whatever of the Taif agreement the agreement that was signed in 1989 that ended the lebanese civil war and they signed it in the city of Taif in saudi arabia and that uh, system sort of codified sectarianism even more than it was before the war it did a number of things that I won't get into now. It's not that relevant. But what it did really is make it almost basically impossible for anyone to identify in any other way other than with your sect. So the fact that I am from a certain sect, it doesn't matter if I am a believer or not or an atheist or not. None of these things matter. What matters is that this this is your sect. And so you vote according to that and you vote according to sect and according to... Uh, where your family is supposedly originally from. So, for example, I can vote in Ashrafieh, but I don't live in Ashrafieh. I live in a different part of Lebanon. And that's part of the reason why it's been so difficult to really organize, because, for example, when there was a municipal elections in 2016, uh, something like a quarter uh, of—sorry, like there's four times more people who actually live in Beirut than people who are uh, registered to, to vote in Beirut. So you have many of my friends who live in, I don't live in Beirut, but they live in in Beirut. And so they were helping organize people who are officially registered in Beirut, including people who don't live there, to vote there. So that's kind of just like a small uh, uh, example of why it's been so difficult on all levels to really organize for, for an alternative to the sectarian system that we have now.
3: And it, it, it does seem like what we're seeing, and again, you know, this is my, my perception as a, a very much an outsider, that some of this sectarianism is starting to fade um, in the face of kind of a, an understanding that more solidarity uh, between groups is necessary if you're going to actually deal with sort of the problems that are making it so expensive to just live a basic life in Lebanon. Is that, is that what you feel you are seeing or would you say I'm kind of off base there?
6: No, no, that's definitely what's happening. That that's really been the, That is the most extraordinary thing that's happening, and that's why it really feels different than before. Again, as someone like I've been involved in protests since I think 2010 was my first one, and I went, I went to the very brief one, 2011. There was some stuff in between, and then 2015 was the big one, and then you had, as I said, 2016, 2018. But there's nothing really like what's happening now. Now you have a chance in Tripoli, a Sunni majority down the north, saying, like, openly, and people, like, in the hundreds of thousands repeating the, these chants, like, we are with you in Nabati, which is a majority Shia area, uh, until the death. And we are, like, we are, uh, I don't know how to translate this, but like, we stand in solidarity with Nabati and with, with um, you know, Beirut and, and Sur and all of these other areas. And there is very much a sense that um, it, it, something has been broken like the and in a good way like there is a, a way of doing things that is extremely difficult that even if people stop protesting today which I don't think is going to happen anyway that it is impossible for the government to just continue and do things as they have been doing so far and one symbolic way that that has been happening has been through extremely uh, rude, if you want insults that people have been throwing against uh, politicians like notably this the song that you have been repeating about Jabran Basil, which is basically uh, fuck his mother. That's basically what it means. Yeah. And that that has that has been repeated on against on pretty much all major politicians, including although much more shy, uh, with someone like Hassan against someone like Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, and some of the other uh, leaders that have had this sort of uh, more sectarian bent to their to
3: their politics, even though they were all part of the sectarian system. Now, uh, that's just the fact that, like, fuck your mother, you know, essentially is a chant like that. You, you, you know, you're talking Lebanon is and particularly Beirut is kind of a very, a, a very much a city of the world. But Lebanon, is, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here much more traditional in a lot of aspects. Like, the the fact that people are saying things like this um, that are so explicit and so kind of obscene is a marker of how extreme the situation has gotten, that that, that, that would even be seen as acceptable. Like, that, that seems very um, shocking to me. Um,
6: yeah, I mean, these insults are very common, but they are not common towards the politicians. They're not common towards people people that you usually you would call or like you would give them honorifics like sir and mister your Excellency, you know that sort of thing and the fact that uh, you have people explicitly when they're being interviewed like what if, if no one if people who aren't going down to the streets what they've been doing basically for the past week is just open some of the channels LBC for example and you have like this split screen into six different you know areas of Lebanon and people just being interviewed and giving their opinion, and the sense that you get, whether you're on the seats or whether you're just at home, is that there is something that is no longer taken for granted, which is that these people have lied time and time and time and time again. And of course those in civil society, as you might call them, or the activists, or even the working classes that are the most affected, these are known. Like None of this is serious. Sorry, none of this is new. But there is something about how all of these things happen at the same time that I don't want to say that people just walk up one day because obviously that's not how things happen, but it's just that uh, as we say, like the 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 wall of fear, if you want, has been broken. Uh, that's a bad translation, but that's basically what it means. And that um, we are getting to the point where even in Nabatieh, which as I said, it's in the south, very much an area where Hezbollah and Amal have a lot of influence. Where you have yesterday it was Amal and Hezbollah Shabiha attacking protesters, and then the next day people in Nabothiye go they're still as we're speaking now on the streets, and something like an hour ago, two members of the municipal council of Nabaiye because of being forced by the people to resign essentially. So you've been having these um, pressures, and just before we spoke something like uh, uh, just before speaking now something like two hours ago. Uh, The president, Michel Aoun, also spoke, and it was such a contrast to what's been happening. It's eight days after we started. He hasn't said a single thing before uh, now, and the film, which it says live, but it is very obviously edited. You have lots of different scenes that keep on changing. It's obviously an edit, and he looks exhausted because he's fairly old, and what he said is utterly disconnected from reality. Like he could have said nothing, and it would have made absolutely no difference. In fact, I think he just pissed people more off
3: at this point. And let me let me think of the right way to phrase this question. Um, do you like what? What is it that you think would be most? You know, uh, most of the audience listening to this, most of the people listening to this are going to be, you know, Americans, Europeans. What what would you say if you could try to get just a couple of basic facts to them? What what is the most important thing for them to understand about what is happening in Lebanon right now? And is there any way for them to to help and to express solidarity with the Lebanese people who are currently protesting against their government?
6: Uh, well, for the latter is, I guess, a bit easier, quick, like uh, faster to answer, because there have been lots of diaspora protests. Mm-hmm. So I would guess uh, show, show your support to these people there, because you know the Lebanese are pretty much everywhere. Um, so that's that's the second question. The first question is, uh, if I need, if I would summarize it, there was a civil war in, between 1975 and 1990. Uh, I am of the generation that was born right after. I was born in '91, but. Uh to use, it symbolically, to use that example a bit, a bit symbolically, just before I was born, there was the amnesty law that was passed, which uh, gave immunity to most crimes committed during the Civil War. So most people who ended up in power after that were active participants in the Civil War. One of the most notorious member, uh, examples of that is Nabi Heberi, who's the leader of the Amal Movement and has been leader of the Amal Movement since the 70s. He has been Speaker of Parliament since 1992. So he's been Speaker of Parliament for my entire existence, basically. And this is someone, like right now there was a joke before uh, that, you know, we're fighting against sectarianism and that means that the president, which currently has to be a Christian and the Prime Minister has to be a, a Sunni Muslim and the Speaker of Parliament has to be a Shia Muslim. The joke was that even if on the, even if we get into a secular government, the member of uh, Speaker of Parliament sorry, will still be still be Nabih because he's been like uh, across all of the governments that have passed uh, so far in, in the past few, few or so decades. So Lebanon has a sectarian system, a uh, confessional system, I guess is the official word, but we just call it Taifi, which is sectarianism, uh, Taifi being sect. And the way that works is that it basically makes it impossible to organize politically or even to vote outside of your sect. There might be some, uh, like you might be in, like the sect being Christian, and you might vote for someone who is a different kind of Christian. But it is almost impossible to vote, for example, for it or Sunni or Shia, depending on when we're talking about the municipal or general elections and that sort of thing. So it has kind of uh, consolidated. Differences that sort of were thought uh, out during the war, if you want. Uh, I'm, I'm grossly oversimplifying the civil war here, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it consolidated these identities, and it made them impo- It made it impossible for those of us who want to identify simply on a civil level, like as only as Lebanese citizens, it made it impossible for us to only do that. And this is what the past week has basically been challenging, and we've been seeing much more of a sentiment that we are doing this as one people, basically, and that it doesn't matter whether you're Shia, or Sunni, or who's or Christian. There are certain things that affect obviously everyone: corruption, poverty, all of that, and we need to solve these.
3: And uh, I, one of the things I'm interested in, so I'm, I'm covering. Obviously, we're in the middle of um a number of different uh political uprisings around the world right now a substantial number Uh um and i mean i know that in catalonia and to a lesser extent in chile uh the hong kong protests have served as a a, a sizable sort of like um inspirational factor in um, how people have approached resisting the government have you seen any impact uh in terms of like the tactics of those protests on what's being done right now in lebanon
6: I've seen some people talk about it, and it was mentioned on the streets. I, I've been going to the Beirut once, and I've sure. seen some people on Twitter sharing these tactics on uh, that the, uh, people in Hong Kong have been doing. But I wouldn't say that, like, one of the issues that I think is common uh, in Lebanon is how I... In the world. Oh, sorry, could, could you say of, again,
3: you cut off for a second that, there. there.
6: Yes, like there, there, there is a sense that you sort of cut off from the world, and that your links are the diaspora links. So you might have people who know a bit about France, a bit, a bit about Brazil or America or Canada or whatever, but that's the extent of how internationalist things can get. If you want, that's the limit of it. So you don't have as much of an influence uh, from the rest of the world outside of uh, the Arab majority world. So you have had some. Uh, sentiments uh, in uh, from what I've seen primarily in Tripoli and in north and in Beirut towards for example sending solidarity to, to Sudanese protesters at the time or to Iraqis right now. you have this a bit, but primarily the overwhelming majority are simply focusing on what's in front of them essentially. And so because this system that we're talking about has really hampered Lebanon, In uh, the Lebanese and people who live in Lebanon as well because don't forget there are also Palestinians and Syrians and migrant domestic workers and so on it has hampered everything uh, to the point where it's just become impossible to look at anything else and so my hope is that we solve this issue now and I don't even think we're going to fully solve it obviously but we start putting cracks in the system and this will allow people in Lebanon I think maybe that's the optimist in me to sort of regain a bit of confidence. And that, hopefully, can uh, lead to us learning more things in a more long term. It's just that right now, the struggle has really been to maintain the momentum every single day. That's really been the main thing. And because Lebanon is so divided by region, you don't have a train or a metro or you know something that really links the region, everything is just by car. Uh, it's been very easy for these sectarian parties to sort of lock off, if you want, an area from the other, and that's sort of been uh, what's happening. But thankfully, you know, through uh, the internet, social media, but also through some of the coverage on the news, you've been able, we've been able to see what's been happening in other areas, and that has sort of strengthened uh, individual protests as well.
3: And that seemed—it's like that's part of what seems like we're kind of watching the worst nightmare of the powers that be in Lebanon occur, which is these different groups that have been split by sort of sect, um, realizing that they all have much more in common with each other as fellow working class people, as people who have to, you know, who can't count on, um, you know, stealing millions of dollars from uh, the the larger chunk of the country, like the, the normal folks in Lebanon. Um, Realizing they have much more in common with one another uh, than with the people who run the country, um, that that seems like what's happening, and it seems like the worst case scenario for the people in charge.
6: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what's happening. I actually wrote down some numbers uh, to show what, what, like what we're talking about when we're talking about the levels of inequality in Lebanon. This is as of uh, 2014, and it's got worse, worse. Uh, it's worsened since. Uh, the top 1% receives approximately a quarter of the total national income, which means that the bottom 50% is left with 10% of the national income. The bottom 50% makes, and this is in euros, uh, the study was done in euros, bottom 50% makes about 3,000 euros per year. The middle 40%, and this speaks to how there's, there isn't really a middle class anymore, you sort of have a class that's in between, the middle 40% makes 11,000 euros a year, And then it goes up and up and up. The top 10% makes 81,000. The top 1% makes 334,000. And then the top 0.1% makes 1.5 million. And the the top 0.001% makes 47 million. So you would have in a a, a city like Tripoli, which is one of the poorest, it's the poorest biggest city, basically. It's the second biggest city in Lebanon. And it's the poorest at that. You have, I think, two or three or four. I I kind of keep losing count of who's a billionaire and who's a multi-hundred millionaire. Billionaires in Najib Mi'ati and and Saad Hariri are both from there, and they are billionaires. This is just an example. This is sort of the sort of situation, and these are the numbers that we have. There are numbers that we don't have. We don't know, for example, on the side of Hezbollah, how much money is coming from Iran. We don't know all of these numbers, and we don't don't know (coughs) how much of the money that these Lebanese politicians, warlords, oligarchs, whatever have, how much of it is actually in Lebanon? You have people that were mentioned in the Panama papers a few years ago because they have, you know, offshore accounts here and there. So and Swiss banks are always mentioned as part in the protests because it's so common for us to just assume and obviously it's accurate, that they have so much money in Swiss banks. this, this is just really like a, a taste of of the situation that's here. So it's not just that people suddenly are realizing that they're, you know, uh, old Lebanese and they have these things in common. It's not, that in itself isn't really new. It's more that the way, the only ways people have been able to mobilize so far because of the combination of sectarianism, as we mentioned, which is consolidated and and basically made into law, but also the the issues of the lack of public space, the issues of it's very difficult to actually physically get from one area to the other because of that because of the lack of public transport, sorry. It's been just extremely difficult to kind of uh, shake the system uh, hard enough to allow independence, at least as a start, to get in and show just by example. It's been basically impossible to show by example that an alternative is possible. So the hope here is, at least, that's that's the sentiment that I'm getting, that most people are hoping, that this government falls what comes after it depends on who you talk to. Someone is sort of, some. Uh, sorry, some people want a sort of technocratic government that temporarily replaces it, and then you have early elections. Other people are just going for early elections directly, and their uh, their the hope basically is that this time, just as in uh, last year, we were we almost got a few independents. This time we will be able to do way more because the people, the, the sectarian warlords and oligarchs that united against us are extremely unpopular and this time hopefully or you know next in this imaginary future election they will be less able to mobilize in the same way that they did before
3: well joey thank you so much for talking with me today uh is there anything else you wanted to talk about or wanted to mention uh before we we draw this to a close
6: i would just ask people to basically keep an eye out on what's happening i don't know if it will get worse i don't I'm hoping not, but it's very difficult to predict what some of these sectarian parties, how they will react if they feel that the only thing they have to stay in power is to basically show some folks, because they all have armed militias. And that's obviously the, the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is that the pressure is so overwhelming and so um, uh, decentralized. Yeah, so I'll mention this as a last thing, the fact that it's so decentralized, means that if, for example, Hezbollah wants to crack down on people in Nabatieh, you will have people in Tripoli telling those people in Nabatieh that we stand with you. And there is this popular, I think it went viral video of in Tripoli, the third night or something, people chanting, before chanting Shaburi, the Islam, the people want the downfall of the regime, which obviously has been a popular chant, obviously from 2011, uh, now re much more strongly in Lebanon. Besides that, they said something along the lines of if they shut down all the squares, our square will remain open, the Tripoli square, Sahat uh, know. Nur. And that's sort of the end note that I can, like the note that I can end on because it really shows that it would be very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult for the ruling establishment, these sectarian warlords, oligarchs, to shut all of this down. That I think is very difficult for them to do.
3: Well, thank you, Joey. Uh, thank you for talking with me, and, and thank you for sharing um, your impressions of what's, what's going on in your country. I really do appreciate it.
6: Thank you. Thanks for your time.
3: Yeah. And last, we have my interview with Chabat. So I actually conducted this through WhatsApp. I asked her some questions, and she responded to me. So uh, the first question was, what is your understanding of the agreement reached by the SDF, which are the military forces of Rojava, uh, and the Syrian regime?
7: The memorandum between the SDF and the Syrian regime is a military and not relevant to the political status of self-administration. Actually, the withdrawal of the American did not give a choice to the court then dealing with the Assad and the regime. The regime forces are located in Kobani, Manbij, and Isa city, as well as it's present in their headquarters in Hasekan and Qamishli cities. The officials of the self-administration says that it's a duty of the Syrian government to protect Syria international border from the Turkish occupation, to avoid having the same scenario of Afrin. I talked to many people from Qamishli about that. They said they are not happy to receive the regime after all these years of self-autonomous. But at the end, regime might be better than Turkey and others said they will leave if the regime take over this area, including me, as many of them participate in the 2011 demonstration against Assad. Uh,
3: the second question I asked Khabat was, how do you believe closer integration of Rojava to the Syrian state will affect the progress of the women's revolution?
7: Regime is representing the patriarchy system. On the contrary, Rojava is representing the women's revolution. Women of Rojava built last Eight years, specific system for the women in all levels, military, economically, politically, and they made impact in the education via teaching the geology, which is a woman science, on the mentality of the new generations. In addition, the implementation of the co-presidency system in all the institutions, starting from coming to the highest official ranks, allowed very effective participation of a woman to lead this region beside the men. I interviewed Dubai Ali, the co-presidency of a Society Protection Forces in jazeera canton about this subject and she said we know how to protect ourselves now after a years of experience and we are not afraid of a regime coming back it's obvious that the women of rojava will not lead their gains easily but there is a great risk on the woman evolution in case the regime take over rojava i do believe that the regime will first target the women specifically because this is what makes rojava unique on a global level
3: now, the third question I asked Chabat was, the ceasefire, as written, appears to give Turkey all at once and leave nothing for the SDF or Rojava. Do you believe it will actually be followed?
7: Even the agreement being implemented under the American monitoring, but we saw the first day morning of the truce had been breached by Turkey and their backed forces. Turkey removed the parts of the wall in the Seregania city and entered their backed forces. Heavy clashes took place in the city beside the shelling as a result of the Turkish breach of the troops last three days, there were 25 fighters being killed and 17 injured on the other side. 17 civilians as a result lost their lives as a result of the bombardment of the Turkish. Yesterday, there was a stop of bombardment for some time, which allowed the medical teams to evacuate a lot of injured and martyrs, both fighters and civilians. This afternoon, the SDF announced that they withdrew all the forces from uh, Sarakania without details about the agreement yet. In the military analysis, the ceasefire doesn't mean surrounding by the SDF as there is no clear details about the agreement. But that doesn't mean that Turkey will stop the operation as soon it gets the safe zone area between Sarai and Tulabiyat in 35-kilometer depth. As we see on the ground that Turkey wants to destroy the safe administration system and Rojava, there is a report right, report right now saying that there is a discussion between Turkey and Russia about Kobani even. So this ceasefire doesn't mean surrounding by the SDF, and it doesn't mean that Turk will gonna stop even if they get that area.
3: Uh, The fourth question I asked Khabat was, how has the autonomous region handled the flow of so many refugees from villages under attack by Turkey?
7: October 9th, when the Turkish bombardment start against all Rojava cities, which is located on the Syrian-Turkish border, that led to a massive waves of the IDPs who moved from their cities to the villages in the south to be saved from the Turkish shelling like Derek and Qamishli cities, while others' population moved to Hasaka city that is far from the border, which is Seregani until Tamar until Abyad, which is more close to the Hasaka city. And those three last cities are most affected by the Turkish attack. The numbers of the IDPs, it's it's increasing and until now it's get around 200,000 uh, persons who have been displaced from their houses. Self-administration municipality of the Hasaka are receiving basically the IDPs and uh, they get some support from the UN agencies, NGOs and local associations uh, as they are transferring the schools to our shelters, but there is a lack of services I went to uh, in the past days to these shelters and there is a um, every time new numbers increasing very fast and the humanitarian situation get worse and the response is so slow comparing to the needs. In addition, it's it worse as a result of the Turkish attack on the vital centers uh, as uh, the Turkish airstrike, they hit the Alok Dam in Sereqaniye, which is feeding the water to uh, city of and and Hasaka and Tiltamer, and that result, a cut of water three days from those cities and the situation of the population and the IDPs, it's get worse as a result of that. Also, I met many families and most of them uh, basically from Abiyat Zarekani, and even some of them have been many times displacement as they were from Afrin. I think if the international response is limited that's will gonna lead to a humanitarian crisis. Even I met the, the head of the West municipality of the Hasaka, Muhammad Shami, and he was explaining to us how it's uh, there is a pressure on the city and there is no support. For example, he gave an example about the needs of the bread. He said, we use it to bake 35 tons of the floor daily for Hasaka only. Last days, we are baking 50 tons and we cannot cover the needs of the population. So the situation every day, every hour get worse and worse and there is a, a gap. and and all the organizations have to respond to these needs. Uh,
3: the fifth question I asked Chabat was, how constant a presence is Turkish air power? I've read a lot of stories of convoys being bombed. Has this changed the way you travel during the day?
7: Actually, while now I am trying to answer this question of yours, there is a, a plane. We're not sure if it in Kamishlei's sky. We're not sure it's, it's belong to whom because it's, it's just confusing. It's so low and it's clear that it's uh, not a drones. Maybe it's a helicopter. Actually, I cannot identify which kind of plane it is, but it's there because despite the Pentagon statement that they were going to have no fly zone even before of for Rojava, even before the Turkey attack started, But on October 9th, when the first Turkish start was jets in Seregani, I was there and I witnessed it, and it was the first hit by the air striking. And since then, all other kinds of the war plans have been used, but the most affected city of the air striking it was Seregania and Tulabiyat. Last night the injuries who have been evacuated by the cities, I met some doctors who are treating them and they told me like a must of the wounds, is the result of the air striking and chilling. So it doesn't stop because uh, in a different occasion, the SDF called the Americans for no-fly zone and they were, they were gonna fight, handling the fighting on the ground, but there was no spo- response until this moment. In addition to the Turkish drones and the airstrike, that's uh, really restrict the movement inside the cities and on the way. Also, one of the main reason now it's affecting on the movement, it's the ISIS sleeper cells. Even in the first day, there is a, uh, because they became very active recently, and there is a sources confirmed that they opened the way to the Turkish-backed forces, which led that they controlled on the M4 highway, and as a result, they executed the civilians, including the co-presidents, uh, co-presidents of the Syrian future party, Haverin Khalaf. Uh, the Turk they didn't stop, and uh, there is a, a no-fly zone until this moment from any side for the Rojava.
3: The sixth question I asked Khabat was, how does press access to the SDF now differ from how it was during the fighting against ISIS? Is it still possible for journalists to reach the front line?
7: Actually, if we're going to talk about the operation against ISIS and how it's have been globally uh, covered by all the media, uh, because at that time there were the SDF forces, they provide the protection and the coordination for them on the ground, and, and they managed to uh, cover all the operation without any, uh, you know, like a case that say for the journalists to lose their life or anything like that. While in this operation via the Turkish attack, there is last 10 days four journalists lost their lives and other sevens have been injured. Because uh, now even the, the limited, uh, the access, it's limited for the media because of the security reasons. Uh, there is a shelling airstrike, ISIS slipper seals, and also there is a, a fear from the Syrian regime uh, present also. So the, there is a no comparison in a way. Because of that, we can say like uh, this operation can't be covered as it have been covered like the operation against ISIS, unfortunately.
3: And the seventh question I asked Khabat was, of course, what can people outside Rojava do to help?
7: I think the people of the outside can help Rojava and specifically all the feminist movements have to rise up for Rojava. Otherwise we as a woman all over the world might face the risk to lose the the woman revolution. Any activity to support Rojava like demonstrations, donation, boycott Turkish goods and raise the awareness of the Western community about what is Rojava facing currently. It's a genocide, it's a ethnic a glancing and it's a demogra- demographic demographic changing and everyone have to take the responsibilities in order to make some steps and that's will going to help Rojava for sure.
3: Okay, uh, and that's all the interview audio. Again, I'm Robert Evans. You can find uh, sources for this episode on BehindTheBastards.com uh, You can find me on Twitter at I Write okay. You can find us on Twitter at bastardspod. and uh, that's that's it. That's the episode. Go Go do something useful.
1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VTW group void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new... New home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, MLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.